this is The Space Shot, episode 372 for July 1st, 2018. So, about my new job, I'm John Mulnix. This is the longest I've gone between recording episodes, and I'm not going to be waiting this long again. We've got a lot to catch up on, so let's get to it. I've got a quick programming note before we get started. My crazy schedule this past month meant that we weren't able to record a Cosmosphere podcast for June, but we do have July's episode in the planning stages and should be recording that soon. Later this July, I'm going to be interviewing the United Launch Alliance CEO, Tori Bruno, and our conversation will be airing in the August edition of the Cosmosphere podcast. I'm super excited to be able to talk with Tori, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with all of you. I've had an incredible past two weeks, and now it's time for some details. This past Monday, I interviewed for the planning coordinator position with Faustin Tool, a Colorado-based aerospace manufacturing company. The story of how I met Heidi, one of the people I interviewed for today's episode, is pretty cool, and it's a wonderful example of how things fall together when you're ready for them. A few months ago, I helped Heidi out with some issues on her AT&T account. We got to talking as I was fixing the plan, and we found out we share a passion for space. After our first meeting, we worked on getting a podcast session set up, and that's where I interviewed Heidi and Alicia for the space shot. While editing this episode, Heidi and I were in contact, and she let me know that a position had opened up with Faustin, so I sent in my resume and interviewed just a few days later. My first two days at Faustin were last week, and I'm already loving it. So, full disclosure here for this episode, I now work at Faustin, something that wasn't even on my radar at the time of recording this interview. Before we hear from my new bosses and about the work that's being done at the company, let's talk a bit about the news. I've also got a quick editorial note and disclaimer before we start. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely mine and do not represent the views of Faustin. I'm speaking to you today as someone who loves space and history, and not as a representative of any company. Now, with that disclaimer out of the way, here's a little bit of news. On Friday, June 29th, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon capsule on the CRS-15 mission. This launch, like many from SpaceX, saw the reuse of a Falcon 9 first stage and Dragon capsule. According to SpaceX, this was the last flight of the Block 4 variant of the Falcon 9, which is an important shift because the company's moving to using the Block 5 variant of the rocket. The Block 5 Falcon 9 will allow for more rapid reusability and eventually a 24-hour turnaround between launches, which is an unheard of pace. The turnaround for the booster that launched CRS-15 was astonishingly fast. It launched for the first time back on April 18, 2018, with the Transiting Exoplanet Survey satellite. If you're interested in learning more about the Falcon 9 cores, I'd recommend a Reddit page that has an incredible amount of detail. It's not an official resource, but there's some dang good information there. I'm impressed with the level of detail, so be sure to check it out. The elephant in the room, as I'm sure many of you know, because your friends have probably been asking about it, is Space Force. It's way too early to tell what's going to be happening with this proposed branch of the military, and I fear we may be moving into beating a dead horse territory at this point until more is known. 
At least the memes have been amusing, I will say that. In a bit of sad news at this point, but not entirely unexpected, the James Webb Space Telescope launch has slipped yet again into 2021. I'm linking to a nasaspaceflight.com article with more details, so check it out. I just finished watching Season 3 of The Expanse, and the finale didn't disappoint. As many of you know, I've been reading the books for a while now, so it's cool to see the TV show start to catch up with where I'm at in the books. If you've yet to watch the show or read the books, you need to get caught up at this point. It is a phenomenal show. July 1st is also the anniversary of the Cassini-Huygens mission entering orbit around Saturn. Check out episode 48 to learn more. There's even some discussion about the National Space Council, which is a topic we'll hear more about later this summer. I've got links to episode 48 and all of the other articles I've mentioned in today's podcast, so be sure to check them out. There's also going to be a link to my new employer's website, so give it a click. My new position with Faustin means that my work schedule has radically improved from what it had been. I'm now working Monday through Thursday, with pretty much every Friday off, which is fantastic. Now that I've got some newly found free time, I'm going to be able to do some jewelry work on the side for fun, and for a little bit of repairs, which is pretty cool too, write more, and have a more consistent recording schedule for the podcast. I'm kicking around the idea of writing a weekly wrap-up again. I stopped doing it originally just because I didn't have the time. If this is something you'd be interested in reading, shoot me a message. My thought is to post it to Medium, Facebook, LinkedIn, and other social media networks, so shoot me a message if you'd enjoy reading that. I think it'd be fun, so I'm probably going to do it anyways, and I'm looking at writing this as a way to keep myself and others up to date on history and happenings in the aerospace industry. Now, let's check in with the bosses. Here's my chat with Heidi and Alicia. Last week, I sat down with Heidi Hostetter and Alicia Savaldi to talk about additive manufacturing, the aerospace industry, and education. Heidi Hostetter is the CEO of H2 Manufacturing Solutions and Vice President of Faustin Precision Machining. She leads the Northern Colorado Manufacturing Partnership Board and is one of the founding members of the ADAPT Center, which we'll be talking more about later in this episode. She also holds a position on the Colorado Advanced Manufacturing Accelerator Review Board, Heidi has been awarded for her work in helping companies like Ball Aerospace, Woodward, Lockheed Martin, and others. She has three children, and in her spare time, she volunteers and supports child safe and respite services. Alicia Savaldi is president of Faustin, a company that's been pushing the boundaries for additive manufacturing or 3D metal printing. Alicia founded Faustin in 1981, and decades later, the company continues to be at the forefront of manufacturing. Faustin Tool was one of the first companies in the Rocky Mountain region to have 3D metal printing equipment, but they didn't stop there. Alicia was also part of the creation of the ADAPT Center. She seeks to collaborate with other companies and institutions to help push the entire manufacturing industry, particularly here in Colorado, into the future with new and innovative manufacturing capabilities. Ms. Svaldi also takes time to serve on the boards for Red Rocks Community College, Manufacturer's Edge, the Arvada Economic Development Association, and the Colorado Manufacturing Association. Faustin Tool was the Manufacturer and Innovator of the Year in 2016. Let's jump into the conversation with Alicia and Heidi. 
All right. So Alicia, let's start with you. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background in the industry and your experience here at Foston. Well, it's been a really fun and exciting experience. You know, the last 35 years, we've always tried to be the, the innovator, the first in everything. So started the company young, fearless, with the attitude we can do anything. Uh, we accept your challenge is our tagline for a reason. We uh, took on the EDM process and the five axis process. And now doing the 3D metal printing is probably one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in 35 years. So what's the difference for those of us who aren't like in, the, you know, manufacturing background what's the difference between like the five axis milling and then the EDM that has something to do with sparks if I remember reading correctly correct correct right. so so the EDM is a is an electrical discharge machining okay. so it is a wire that goes through water and displaces the metal as opposed to milling it away with a five axis machine interesting so what are some of the benefits then of switching to 3d manufacturing instead well, it's, it's an accuracy that you can get on parts that you could never get from machining. It's And you can take parts that were assembled and take three parts and build them together as one. You can make them lighter. So for aerospace, anything that's going to be flying, you can make them lighter in weight. It's a much greener technology because in regular machining, you'll take a hunk of material and take away, and that all goes to recycle, yes, but with 3D metal printing, it's a powder that goes in and is lasered together, and then you can reuse the powder in the next build. Wow. Yeah, if I can jump onto that, I think the real benefit to 3D printing is that um, much of what Alicia said, but if you want to summarize and, and really capture it, it's that now the design engineer in an aerospace, really in any any industry, now has no limitation to the technical capacity or design, right? So in the example that we completely overuse every time, it would be the GE fuel nozzles that are in the leap engines. Okay. GE really took the market by storm when they announced that all of them would be 3D printed um, because what they did was they did, it was something like, you know, and some of these percentages could be a little off, but the, the basic premise was they took 19 different part numbers that now are printed as one. They increase their efficiency by 25% reduce their weight by 33%. You start to talk about those things and yeah. you just simply can't compete. Well, especially for if you're launching into space, that's a lot more payload that you get to get, you know, you get to send somewhere or it's a little bit better margin for fuel, so weight is critical. Um, what what made both of you so interested in 3D printing? I mean, starting off as one of the first companies here in Colorado that had a 3D printer, why was that so important to get in on that technology? Well, I mean, here's the reality. I come into this game halfway through Alicia's, you know, um, ownership of the company. That's the bottom line. What Faustin had already put in place and what they were known for in the industry was their ability not only to precisionly precision machining, um, but it was also their ability to pioneer and innovate. Okay, so Alicia and I really had to sit down, you know, and talk about what was the next step. Do we continue to invest in five axis and traditional manufacturing because that was on the table, or do we do what they had been known for, which is pioneer and innovate? And the next obvious step was, if we did that, then it would lead to 3D metal printing. And that was a request of the Woodwards, the Ball Aerospace, really reaching out to us saying, hey, we would sure love it if Faustin 
would figure this out for us. Okay. Right? Yeah. I can't say that either one of us were truly bought into that. That is the truth. To this day, I'm not sure we're truly bought into that, but we're stuck now. We're there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an incredible technology, and being at the forefront of that is... That's awesome. So it's definitely a short-term pain and hopes for a long-term gain. Yeah, Correct. For sure. Well, and you'd mentioned, you know, like on the wall, this is radio, so nobody can see it, but there's uh, F35 parts. Mm -hmm. And are those then 3D printed as well? Or is, oh, no? Oh, man, no. Okay, no. No. We, I mean, I think that, that we would love it if, if eventually it went that direction. Okay. But here's the deal. This is what a lot of people don't know about government work. Yeah. The F-35 has gotten a ton of media in the last, what, five years? Yeah. Most of it negative about being completely over budget. The reality is we've been building these parts for 15 years. 15. And the reason is because they go what they call, they go through what they call low rate initial production. Yeah. So these parts cannot change once the design is sealed. They go through vibe testing. They go through so many hours of flight testing. Like, this is a done deal. You can't change anything about them. Okay. Unfortunately, the F-35 still, as best I know, that's that's my disclaimer here, what we hear is they still have weight issues, weight concerns, and of course this technology would address that. Yeah. For them to change that at this point, too late. way too late. They may be, the parts we make are um, the upper and lower antenna housing. Okay. on the aircraft, we would never stand a chance at getting that approved. My guess is that the F-35 people, along with their primes, are starting to look at the non-critical parts they can print to remove the weight. That's my guess. Well, and that's something that could probably be addressed in a later block version of... Right, yeah, the next so, rev. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The F-36. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I wonder when that'll be coming. So, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about just the start of the company, but w let's talk a little bit more about your backgrounds. Like what what's one of the things that, you know, you did in school or something that, you know, students nowadays um, could, you know, take a little bit of inspiration from? Oh, man. You take <laughs> well, that first. <laughs> like, I'm not sure um, we're the best example. I, I don't know if I'm the best example of that because I'm, I'm not a college graduate. Okay. I am a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks. I'm a self-learner. Um, everything that I've done, I read. I read continuously, and I try to self-improve and self-educate. Yeah. Um, and so it, I, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I, think, uh, I, I think some college would have been a good idea. I think I took a couple of accounting classes, and that's all I've done. So when the champ program came out for local students in the community college, I was a very big advocate of it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're a product of what a vocational, a strong, robust vocational program would have done. Right. And yeah. so yeah. you support it now. Right. Well, especially for manufacturing. Not, I mean, not everybody needs to get a four-year degree or an advanced degree for a lot of different types of jobs. So I th I, I'm glad you said that because... Not everybody has to do that path. You don't have to go to school and graduate with six figures of debt. Right, so. exactly. It's, it's a big debt when you go to the yeah, four-year university. For sure. It is. But what Alicia has that everybody has to have to run a business and be involved certainly in manufacturing is an ethic and tenacity. Because without those, you're screwed. Yeah. 
Right. The buck stops here. I, I, there's nobody I can go to to say, hey, it's like, you know, you, you stop, you figure it out and, and you must get it done. And that I think that's something Heidi and I have very much in common. Well, that's one of the themes that I've really noticed, you know, the, the first episode in the Centennial series with Barry, mm-hmm. the tenacity. I mean, that's critical. Both of my parents owned their own small business when I was growing up. And it's a nightmare. <laughs> people like think, a nightmare. It, yeah, people think it's, you know, super, it's yeah. all easy. And you get all this time off. No, but it couldn't be, you know, further from the truth. So I'm actually, glad. it's a complete opposite of that. We're the yeah. last ones to take time yeah. off. Yeah, our employees have much more time yeah. Yeah. during the year than than we have. Yeah, I mean, we really have to coordinate it. True. Yeah, and you're never really off. No. I don't. I don't think really. Mm-mm. No, yeah. the only time I remember my mom and dad being off is if they were out of the country and were away from their phones. So right. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's not the case now. No. Because your phone goes everywhere. Unfortunately. Yes. And mine is like a little bit like along those same lines. But the flip side is I do have a four-year degree in business with emphasis in marketing mm-hmm. that I really don't use. That's my truth. Okay. I mean, I got involved in manufacturing. I do what they would call really technical sales, right? So I'll go in. I'll work with the design engineer. So, you know, you look at that too, right? I am the one that got out with the debt. Yeah. And said, well, I hate this job, actually. I hate this job. <laughs> so that's my story. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're I'm good. You're good. Fist. But, um, you know, so I think, you know, but here's what I know. When I was in school, and this is, and, and this is specific to women, I will say this, to females, like the curriculum said to people like me, oh, she's really good at math and science. Guess what? Push her toward marketing. (laughs) Because I was a female. That was like what I was like. Either I had to go to finance, which I was like, she could tell you is not a good place for me to be. (laughs) I round everything up Um, or down. It's not good. Same here. Yeah. But, you know, that was really where they pushed me. Like, she's great at, you know, geometry and algebra and trig. And wow, she should go into finance. And I sat in one finance course and went, what in the actual hell is, go- like, what is this? This number thing? I deal in, like, tens, thousands, millions. We're talking microns. This yeah. thing that she does, I was like, I don't, like, this, I can't comprehend what's happening here. And I think that's the great balance of us. Because when we get into microns, she's like, what the, I, all I know is zeros before that decimal going this way are nothing I want. That's the only she, reason I passed algebra <laughs> in school is because I went every morning for help and he took pity on me and passed me. It was like, so, so my brain was challenged. But as females, like, I think certainly in our generation, yeah. you didn't get pushed toward engineering. Yeah. You definitely were not told, go think about being a machinist or a welder, or because if that would have been an option, I would have taken it. So when I learned the world of like this manufacturing, machining, oh my gosh, these numbers that that I naturally, um, what's the word? Process. Process yeah. or adapt to. Yeah. Like actually have a place in the world. You know, this is the part of the curriculum I think we both preach is like women can do all those things too. So... It'd be. I feel a lot of comfort knowing Alicia's like working and on these boards where it's like, okay, and and myself as well with NoCo, where we're saying okay, the curriculum has to cater to every gender yeah. and every possibility. 
Well, and practical skills too, and just tying real world experiences into what you're learning. Right. So, right. We'll pick our conversation back up here in just a minute. I've got a little bit of audio from the manufacturing floor at Fauston. So, so this part is a 3D printed part. We're talking a little bit about the substrate. Yeah, so it's an ink and all part. And I'm showing you here, John, how this is built on the actual, you have to have a build plate for starters that's loaded into the machine. There's a substrate that supports the actual part. Once the substrate is developed, which you can see all this cross hatching. Yeah. Then that sits on the build plate and you start to lay down the material for the part, the powder in 40 micron layers approximately, it depends on the material, up in Z, okay? So, and then when you take the part out, obviously you have to cut the, the support off, and that's yeah. where the wire EDM comes into play. Okay? The wire EDM. We just slice that off okay. oh. and clean the part up. Oh, wow, okay. Right? Here's this 80-20 rule when we print a metal part. Can I make 80% of the parts to the spec on the printer and clean it up 20%. So here's where that becomes an issue. Surface finishes I have to bring in because it comes off about an RA125 on this, okay. in this technology. Okay. Most customers need at least an RA32 to 64, Okay. right? Yeah. We have to clean it up and threaded holes, things like this, we have to bring it in. So again, you know, we ask people not to overthink it, the spec is the spec. Indicate on your drawing what tolerances you need, what surface finishes you need. We have all the support equipment, as you can hear. We have about 20 different CNC mills, ranging from three, four, five axis. We have wire EDM. Right? We have the ability to do the secondary ops. If you look at the Terry Waller's reports, okay. the additive reports, he's like okay. the additive guru. He happens to live in Fort Collins. Oh, wow. There's a thing called the Waller's report. If you look at that, there's a, uh, two years ago he quoted, and he's 100% correct, that the secondary operations are as important, if not more important, than the actual printing. We like to tell people this. This particular part that you see here, I won't mention who or what, but it's a, an impeller blade, right? <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about ADAPT because I think this is a good time to start talking about that. So the Alliance for the Development of Additive Processing Technologies, what does that mean? Yeah, well, first of all, that acronym is awesome. Having to define it was done by academics. Because okay. <laughs> I still hear it and go, oh, right, right. That's what it means. <laughs> so here's, here's the bottom line and interject at any point. Leisha makes this big capital investment. We have a vision around, oh my gosh, you know, we're gonna pioneer this new technology. We're gonna help out, you know, all things metal here. I wanna preface, we do nothing with polymers, nothing, okay? Okay. Because there's a lot of confusion when you say 3D printing yeah. or additive. It's the that plastic. We do, we do not do that. Okay. It is strictly metal. Okay. So, you know, our customers convinced me we need to do this. I convinced Alicia, that's how that goes. She spends the money, brings it in, coordinates all of those processes. And we quickly identify specific to space, right? Because that's why you're here today. Holy crap. Nobody actually, they're great about the fact that we have this equipment and we could do this. And now they've sprung on us that, well, we actually need to understand the characteristics of what you've printed. And we're like, 
We didn't think of that. <laughs> We're in trouble, Houston. Yeah. We got a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, just like Tom Hanks and Apollo, we got a problem, Houston. <laughs> so, so I start racking my brain, and again, this is that you know, there's nowhere else to go, right? We're both kind of up against the wall, and it's like, okay, well, ten minutes from here is the best metallurgic school in the world, Colorado School of Mines. Yeah. So really long story short, we talk to them and say, hey, if we print these parts out of Inconel, right? Because that's Space Love's couple of oh, yeah. materials, beryllium and Inconel. They love it for coefficiency reasons, right? So we talk to them and say, okay, if we print this stuff, what can you do? And they said, okay, for this amount of money, you know, millions. Yeah. <laughs> we can characterize your parts. We can look at things like micro- um, microscopy, hardness, you know, surface finishes, porosity, right? We can wow. take a look at these things and we could actually, without destructing the material, the part, that's the big piece. We can wow. tell you with a CT scanner and certain lab tools and equipment, what we could tell you what you actually have printed. Okay. Well, now what? Who's going to come up with the money? A school doesn't have money, and we're certainly not going to dish out $2.5 million for this. So that led us to the Advanced Accelerator Program that, um, you know, legislation here in Colorado created. And we put together what they call an infrastructure proposal for that grant cycle. And we won the first one that went across all industry sectors for $2.5 million. And basically... You know, that the caveat was if they were to give us this money, we had to go before the Economic Development Committee mm-hmm. in the state. Mm-hmm. We had to guarantee them we could get this lab developed, up and running, equipment installed in 12 months and have results unheard of, yeah. unheard of in academia. In three months, we had the equipment in, they had the lab up and running, and by December of a year later, we had over 4,000 samples, and some of my numbers are a little funky now, but, you know, that they had tested and had data logged in a database called Citronation, okay. which is run by a company out of the Bay Area, which was the only company involved that wasn't a Colorado company called Citrine. So basically what that database did was never about printing. It was always about the data. And... So as a design engineer, you could go into this database if you had bought a seed to it, and you could click on the filters that matter to you, you know, and it would say, oh, this manufacturer, which in our case was um, Concept Laser M2 Kusing Inconel 718, which in the additive world was known as a CL100NB powder, Okay. okay? Basically, it would say, oh, this is the powder you need. This is a manufacturer of the powder. This is the equipment you have to run it on. And here are the five vendors you can go use for this. Wow. Because what we quickly identified was it wasn't like traditional manufacturing, right? I mean, you couldn't you couldn't just say this is a five-axis part made out of aluminum 6061 and there's, you know, 5,000 manufacturers in the state who could produce it. It was really finite who you could go to, what you could use, right, for now. Yeah. So we had to have that. We could print the customer's part, 
they could take it to the lab for characterization. And the caveat was that whatever data they got out of that lab became public to the database, right? So we crossed some, some proprietary boundaries with that because now you had a Faust in there, you had... Um, Lockheed Martin Ball Aerospace kind yeah. of all coming together saying, yeah, we got to figure this out. We can't like get into this proprietary stuff. That was a trade-off. Does that make well, sense? It doesn't. I mean, what I, I look at it as the, the benefit longer term going forward is everybody gets to understand this newer technology a little bit better. So Right. Exactly. That's what the goal was. Yeah. I mean, that just being able to know how a certain metal will change because i mean yeah if it's machined or 3d printed it's going to have different characteristics so that's an incredible it's a big industry push it's a industrial revolution if you think about it like and i never count the web i just don't yeah. <laughs> so they say that's the third one fine i don't but whatever 3d printing we haven't yeah. had a real change in manufacturing since henry ford yeah everything's either machined or Cast or right. yeah, so this is, this is a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And and with natural resources dwindling, I mean, I think that there's people are going to start to have no choice. Well, and just longer term for you know, this is like super longer term, but like in situ resource utilization, being able to print a part when you're out at Mars, that's. You know, oh, a little sure. bit easier exactly. than space station. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. It's easier than taking a mill with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And right. milling things, you know, on Mars. But so I, I think that's a lot of that is what drives you then, that pushing forward for that innovation and finding the next, you know, helping push the frontier of manufacturing. Is that really what drives both of you then? Well, Alicia might say yes to the money. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Are we Nothing supposed to be authentic or politically correct? You, 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 whatever your 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 uh, response is, that works for me. Yeah, I think you know we would certainly like to make money in yeah. this, and we have not. Oh, yeah. That's our truth. Yeah, right. But at the end of the it's day, a challenge. Yeah, I think we look at like the future for manufacturing is pretty grim if there's not a real disruptive pivot here quickly. Natural resources, lead times, what a lot of people don't realize about space programs, and I, I know that you know this, John, but every I'm shocked every time to tell this to people, and they're like, oh, now I get it. And that is, okay, if we have a four- to six-month lead time on a machine, which means you can't even get on it for that amount of time, okay? And then your clock starts ticking, Yeah. right? And maybe you've got a part that's, you know, I can think of a couple like on Kepler, the optical sub substrate took us 18 months to produce. Yeah. Okay. So when you start to really stack this up and now you've got like over a year lead time, you're at a two year lead time if you look at that part. Okay. Specifically, you know, these launch dates that space programs come up with are closely monitored. There's a reason they get this one moment in time that they can launch that scope yeah. to place it exactly where they need it. And here's a really unfortunate news. If you miss it, <laughs> it never comes around or not in your lifetime again. Yeah. So being late is not an option. 
a lot of like the you know principal investigators on those missions if it launches five or ten years late that's the difference between having that data during their career and right. having it be their graduate assistants data so it's right. and you may miss that. your window of what it is you're trying to achieve in total well, I'm glad you mentioned Kepler because that was one of the missions that when we were talking earlier, that sound, you know, that's one of the big ones in the news. So what exactly was produced at the optical substrate? What is what part of the telescope is that? Yeah, so we can obviously it's radio, so you can't see that's yeah. unfortunate. But that so for those that know about Kepler, right, the things that they know are that um, a lot of Colorado companies involved in that a ton. In fact, Ball Aerospace. LASP, um, Faustin, you know, we're always the nameless one, right? We're, we're the secondary or maybe even tertiary. <laughs> like nobody knows us, right? But um, the, it also was one of the biggest optical spins in the history of any government, any space program. I can't remember the dollars involved, and maybe at some point I can research that and email you later. Sure. But this substrate, it's an optical substrate, right? Okay. So this is like one of the most critical parts to that scope. Any of those pockets on that Invar substrate, if they're off by, you know, gosh, half a fraction of one human hair, you're hosed. You've just screwed up the whole optical piece of the scope. Wow. Well, if it's a scope... Yeah, you the optics are pretty yeah, critical, exactly. right? As we found with Hubble back in the 90s. So. Right, yeah. and none of us really knew what we were doing. We worked with an engineer who we respect a lot at Ball Aerospace. And literally, this is kind of before um, SLA and all that became a really big deal. He brought out to me, he didn't even have a print. He met me in the lobby, the security lobby at Ball Aerospace, and I can't mention his name just because of sure. legal stuff and NDA stuff, but he built it up with Legos. That's so cool. <laughs> and he That's said, so cool. this is what I need you to make, Heidi. And I was like, wow, <laughs> is there any way we can get that in a print? Because <laughs> I am going to struggle, but it looks good. It looks good. <laughs> so it, my, my Lego building skills might come to use in the future then. That's they good. they good may. Right. Good to know. You never know. Most people don't know that piece of it, but he actually built it out of Legos. Well, I mean, it's it's a good way, I guess, to prototype it. Because, I mean, if you don't want to have to draw it, is might as well build it in something that you can see what it would look like in 3D. So Yeah, I mean, I think he works. drew it and then built it with yeah. his Legos to see if it was even possible. And the next step was, can you actually do this? That's cool. <laughs> And then from there, we actually kind of, that was more of a reverse engineering program where we helped him identify tolerances and cryocycles. And that was a true partnership. See, and that's what I find fascinating about a lot of the parts of all of the different space, you know, whether it was going back to Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the amount of partnerships between smaller contractors and NASA is just astounding that you know there's a lot of things that would have never been done had it not been for smaller businesses for medium-sized businesses and i i think that's so cool that you were brought in just to help with that little part of, i mean or not little part of it but big part of the mm -hmm. te the telescope that's just a really cool story so and then prior to me with faustin they worked on mars rover i mean with the, i would say you know gosh 
40% of what we do here is really dedicated to defense and aerospace. And that's a very fine line. Yeah. Right. A lot of the defense communications somehow tie into aerospace somewhere along the line. Yeah, we go as far back as the space station. We have a part on the space station. That's really cool. We'll pick our conversation up again here shortly. Part of the tour that Heidi gave me back during the interview was of the inspection facility at Fauston. The other day at work, I got to see some of these machines actually being used, and it's incredible the level of detail that they're able to examine. Here's a little bit of the audio from our chat in the inspection room. Sure. So, John, one thing people don't realize in aerospace is that everything matters. So we make a part, but if it can't be inspected, it can't go out. Right. Okay. Cut. Yeah. So, so everything we do is temperature controlled to the aerospace, aerospace spec. Everything has to be monitored and controlled to ambient temperature, 68 to 72 degrees. We cannot fall out of that range okay. with a certain humidity percentage. Sometimes this material, in the case of the F-35 parts you saw, mm-hmm. you know, when you remove, um, you know, 350 pounds plus on aluminum 7075, there's an acclimation period. Those parts will come into the lab, they'll sit overnight, they'll acclimate, then we'll inspect. Immediately, when you're dealing with parts that have tolerances half of, you know, a fraction of one human hair, yeah. which is true, one human hair, like these guys, A, can't screw up. And if that temperature is out, we know at the minute the inspector tries to inspect the part, we know, we know. Immediately we say, what's the temperature? Has somebody changed anything? We know, it matters, that material will move based on temperature. Wow. So everything is controlled to that aero, that um, aerospace spec. I wish I knew it off the top of my head. No worries. Okay. So, so in the lab. So this is the lab then. Yeah. yeah. So what, what goes on in here then? So they validate. You can make it, but you got to be able to validate it. Okay. Um, everything we have in here is to the standards of Ball Aerospace, Lockheed Martin, all the big guys. We have two CMM machines. And CMM. Run off, um, coordinated measurement machines. Okay. okay. So these machines um, work with a software package called Clipso software. And so they tell us everything we need to know. You know, on a print, a part, the design engineer will say, my profiles need to be this, my runouts need to be this, right? Flatness, this, that. Okay. These machines take thousands of surfacing points. Thousands. They tell me, if we're in, we're out, right? How far in, how far out. We have height gauges, we have, uh, you know, uh, basically anything you need to validate the part. And if we don't, we don't accept the job. Okay. Right? Because, for example, if, if you're going on an aircraft, I need to make sure everything I've done is to whatever the yeah. customer has approved. FAA or you know whoever whoever the governing body is that says this is what you have to do we do it we don't take, we don't play any games with it we ended our chat with some advice for students looking to get into the field let's jump back into that conversation now do you mind if we close then with like just advice to students that are looking at entering an aerospace or manufacturing field I'll probably have a, a different I'll probably go um 
I, I, I like very much being involved at the Red Rocks Warren Tech. Okay. They have a great program over there. In the summer, they do um, a session with just girls. Okay. And to just be open to it. not Don't don't think of just the, the white-collar work. I think if they would have an opportunity to tour a, a community college and see the advantages of going there, perhaps, instead Versus of a, a, a four-year four university, yeah. to be open. And to be open all the way back to middle school. Okay. And I'm going to pitch um, the sector partnerships. Every state has typically four. They're okay. usually north, south, east, west. The one that is most popular here in Colorado is the NOCO group, Northern Colorado Manufacturers. Okay. You know, I would encourage all manufacturers, big, medium, small, to be at the table, work with their sector partnerships, because this is where they're trying to work with the community colleges. They're trying to work with the workforce gaps. You know, what we can't continue to do is bleed dry the, the supply chain. And what I mean by that, here would be an example, and this is super imperative. A Woodward, if they keep taking that, you know, really high precision um, five-axis machinist away from a Faustin, then they're really eroding their supply chain. So we have to find a way through those sector partnerships to work together to figure out how to place interns, where to place interns, and how to keep keep the machine shops thriving. Okay. Because what a Woodward does is they run what I would call their BNC commodities, right, through their shop. And they send and out BNC. Their, um, so, like, if you look at what you'll hear a lot in community is um, – mid to to low volume high high mix which okay. means you know really precise parts almost always your big oems are outsourcing to a faustin okay for okay. that work okay okay they they don't want to carry the overhead capital wise to do that and that's fine but don't take that employee i need that employee right we need that employee but if you want to take the interns to use them for your, what I call BNC commodities, which means, and this is how they'll coin it, um, high volume, low mix, which means, you know, wide open tolerance okay, parts kind of all day long. They love running that stuff there. They save a lot of money doing it. Great. You intern them and give them to us later. We have to come up with something and that's what the sector partnerships are supposed to do. So while we're working on that, then you have people like Alicia who are on the front range boards and things like this. So we're supposed to be like collaborating globally, but you can't do it if it's just the small guys at the table. Can't. That's a, that's a really a interesting problem, I guess, that I hadn't thought about is just being able to make sure everybody has a good talent mix. It's the biggest challenge yeah. in this industry. Yeah. In the nation. <laughs> I mean, I can remember 15 years ago, 17 years ago, starting here, we had 40 machinists. 30, 40? 30. 30. We couldn't find 30 machinists right now if we had to. Wow. It's yeah. not possible. Is the, that a fair statement? Is, I'll buy a new piece of equipment. You give me a machinist to run it. It's not possible. It, it limits your capital investment. Because you can only buy a machine if you have somebody to run it. Right? Yeah. 
It's a big problem. So you have me, who's responsible for revenue generation, going to her saying, get me people. She can't find them. She actually cannot find them. So we have to figure it out. That's why we sit on these boards. Well, I mean, that's something that students going forward, it's a good piece of information to have because it's not just the technical field that, you know, you have to go into. There's more practical, like you were saying, not not blue collar, but, you know, the manufacturing side of the industry is just as critical as the software side or the design side. You have to be able to build the things if we're going to go somewhere. It is is a blue collar job. But what we need to stress in this country is we are really proud to be a blue collar company. Yeah. I have always had such pride in thinking of what we do, and we are absolutely the blue-collar worker. I'm proud of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. No, and and that's one thing that I wish more people would understand, especially for like trade schools. Right. It's it's not a bad option for it's a lot a of people. Great option. Yeah. We've never laid off anyone. Wow. Thirty-five years. Yeah, back in the crash, I mean, you and I took the financial hit. We never let anyone go. We never. Yeah. That's incredible. But here's the piece. Like, there's that piece that she speaks to, and I'm kind of waving the flag of, like, here's the deal. There's 6,000 manufacturers in the state of Colorado. 5,000 of them are 20 or less employees. If those shops keep going out of business because the OEM is pressing them so hard on certain pricing, things like this, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. It's not just a loss of jobs. It's a loss of, I mean, institutional memory of, of workers that you can't just reach, you know, can't train somebody and just get them in there immediately. That's a, that's a longer term problem if that continues to happen. Yeah. So. So the shout out is we have to work together. I think that's a great part to end on. Heidi, Alicia, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, John. That's it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.